Hello, this is episode six of season four. Now, in this episode, I'll be talking with Luke Jones of Lark Collective. So Luke is a landscape architect and he'll be letting us know how you can work with one in your renovation or new build project. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Our Get It Right podcast partner for season four is Colourbond Steel and their matte range. So Colourbond Steel matte is a great choice for creating a stunning, sophisticated and subtle look for your home in a material that is tested to withstand Australia's harsh conditions and be durable, long-lasting and strong for your home. As you may know, Colourbond Steel has been around for over 50 years now, so quintessentially Australian, it's been used in all kinds of projects in locations all across Australia with its tried and tested performance and its enduring style. The Colourbond Steel matte range takes this to the next level. With five colours to choose from, the matte range was tested for 10 years before it was brought to market. Sophisticated and understated, it has this gorgeous luxe feel in a material that's seriously strong and durable. There are so many ways that you can use it in the walls and roof of your home, whether you're renovating or building, to create the design style that you're seeking. With a beautiful and neutral look, it has an elegance that I know that you'll love, and it diffuses light for a soft, natural, textured finish and not only does Colourbond steel matte look gorgeous being steel it's also 100% recyclable it's high-tech it's tested and designed for the Australian climate it's a choice for bushfire zones it's able to give your home a contemporary and sophisticated feel and it has 50 years of history behind it as a brand it's just amazing so head to www.colorbond.com forward slash undercover architect and that's c-o-l-o-r-b-o-n-d.com forward slash undercover architect there you can learn more about this great mat range you can request samples which i really encourage you to do and you can get inspired for how you could use it in your reno or new home and stay tuned across the season as i'll be sharing more ideas and info to help you see how it could work for your project now let's get on with the episode In this episode, we head outside and into the gardens and exteriors of our homes. When we're renovating or building our home, we are often seeking a big improvement in our lifestyle at home. And so this can mean enlarging our home or even building a bigger one. And generally, that will mean creating fantastic living, kitchen and dining spaces that then flow to an outdoor entertaining area and to functional gardens. Look, our connection with nature, with our environment, this can all make a huge difference to how we feel and how our homes feel overall. And creating gardens and outdoor areas that are safe, secure and that add lifestyle to our homes, this can make a huge difference to our finished project. But, and it's a big but, often what I see happen is that they get left off the budget altogether or they get cut off at some point during the project when money gets tight, or it gets set aside as a DIY job, you know, with you planning to be a weekend warrior, sort of backyard blitz action, and and that never really happens like we planned for it and life kind of gets in the way. 
Yet they're such a big part of helping our projects feel finished. You know, how our landscape, how our gardens, how the entry arrival, how the all of the exterior land around our home, how that works is so much part of helping our homes work well overall. And to have this space around your home, be it compact or generous, that, that is just beautiful and well-designed and, and lovely to be in. This is so significant for your homes and for the lifestyle that you lead in them. Homeowners are often surprised at the cost of their landscaping, and it can vary based on your site and the nature of topography, how easy access is for machinery and what you're ultimately seeking to create in your project. And as you can imagine, it can be fairly labour intensive, especially if your site is uh, difficult to get you know, machinery into and a lot of the work is having to be done by hand. You know, dirt also has this handy way of expanding in size when you pull it out of the ground. It really surprises a lot of people. I often say that it triples in size. So moving it around, getting it off-site, you know, all of this can be quite expensive, labour-intensive and time-consuming. So if you then add to that any retaining uh, walls that you might be building, any services that you're wanting to add, if you're wanting to put power or lighting out into your landscape, irrigation, any of those kinds of things, you know, add to that also the style and design of your hardscape or your paved areas and your planting. It's it's really like designing another room to your home. And it's so worth the effort when you get it right. So it's really great if you can give it attention and budget in your project. I think too, it's often one of those areas that we think that we can tackle all ourselves. Uh, but when you actually see landscaped areas that have had design input from a professional, it can be amazing the difference that it will make to how the garden and outdoor areas function and feel, both in the daytime and at night. And it doesn't necessarily mean a massive extra amount of money to achieve that. It's really that expertise and design input that can be the difference in lifting the experience of your outdoor areas. So I'm so super excited to be sitting down with Luke Jones of Lark Collective. Now, Lark Collective formed in 2012 when Luke returned from a year-long adventure, uh, experiencing the extreme landscapes of the Mexican desert and the freezing waters of New Jersey and Rocky Mountains of Canada from the solace of a van. He actually became acutely aware of space and thus space-saving solutions. I love how that travel has informed how he thinks about landscape. So Lark Collective specialise in what they call unique solution-based design. And what this means is that they listen carefully to clients' needs to collaboratively create with those needs and objectives in mind. They work in a range of project types, which include commercial, multi-residential and single residential. And Luke will talk through some of those uh, project types uh, in our episode. And their work has been published in Inside Out magazine and they have this fantastic collaborative approach in all of their work. Luke is actually based near where I live and connecting with him recently is is a bit of a funny story. See, Luke and I actually worked in the same office space about 17 years ago. So when I worked for Arkfield in Brisbane, we shared an office with a landscape architecture practice that Luke worked with and it was called Stephen Pate Landscape Architects or SPLAT for short. And so Arkfield and SPLAT teams, we would often all have morning tea together, uh, we'd have Christmas parties together, we'd organise events together and we also enjoyed working together on 
certain projects. And I was at a friend's birthday party uh, at a birthday dinner recently, and I was introduced to Luke, who now has a very, <laughs> very beautiful and large beard. And he was uh, and looks nothing really like the person that I knew all those years ago. And he was keen to hear about how my husband was working with uh, and running our property where we live because Luke has recently uh, bought one of his own in the hinterland around Byron. And he looked familiar to me, but I just I couldn't work out why. And then Luke remembered me from Arkfield. Clearly, he had a better memory than I did. And uh, and before I you know before I could actually recognise him through his beard, but then I had this hilarious experience of thinking, oh my gosh, that's Luke. And I could actually pull from my memory the image of what beardless Luke looked like <laughs> all those years ago. So Luke himself has over 15 years experience in various landscape architectural practices and he's worked on a huge range of projects in all scales and sectors and it's with great pleasure that I sit down with Luke to talk about the role of landscape architect and he's got some amazing tips on how to get the most from working with one and also some answers to some of the key questions that you may have about the landscaping component of your project. This is about the who, the what, the when and the why of using a landscape architect for your renovation or building project. So let's get into the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. It's great to have you here talking about the role of a landscape architect and how they can help in your building and renovation project. And I'm really excited to be sharing this with the UA community. Now, I gave an introduction to you and your business, but perhaps in your own words, you could share who is Luke Jones and Lark Collective and what type of projects do you generally work on? It's a, it's a good question. Who is Luke Jones? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am a 37-year-old Byron Bay uh, resident now. Um, I was born in North Queensland and I was inspired as a young gardener by my Maltese granddad, always out tending to the veggie patch and the rosellas and all the beautiful plants that he could grow. Yeah, I worked uh, for a long time in, in Brisbane uh, under some larger commercial firms and then got a little bit sick of that and decided to start my own thing, which is Lark Collective. Lark's been going for, I think, five years now. Started in the uh, bedroom of a new farm apartment. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, again, a little tie to Italian and kind of Mediterranean gardens, I think, around that suburb. And that was a great bit of inspiration and carried that on. And, yeah, moved it south down to beautiful Northern Rivers, which is where we are now. Fantastic. And what type of projects do you generally do these days? Uh, we've got a great spread at the moment. We've got a kind of a core amount of work in uh, childcare centres, which is a booming uh, industry in SEQ and in uh, northern New South Wales. Um, we have kind of skilled up a lot in rooftop gardens, again. Oh, wow. Through, uh, yeah, through probably the, the work being there and then the interest in it. Um, so podium landscapes and quite compact, skinny, slender gardens. And we do have a core amount of residential farm master plan and beach houses. So, yeah, a bit of a broad spread. That is a good spread. So, Luke, could you just talk through with me, you know... I think a lot of people get a bit confused about what a landscape architect actually does, you know, think that they're really just for big, you know, big commercial projects or big large scale work. You know, what what does a landscape architect actually do when you're working with them on your building, your new building or renovation project? And, you know, what should you expect in terms of working with one? Again, a great question. There's many landscape architects, many specialties, many areas. I think today we'll probably focus on how it can 
be a residential um, focus. What what our core job is to create a practical and most importantly a functional space um, from everything from the front doormat to the curb to the back fence, side fence, pool, everything you see outside, everything that's green. Um, we don't neglect the the pavements, the driveway, the hard stand, all of that. Um, we often focus on aesthetics and, you know, it's quite nice to, to delve into that and make that the focus. But the core thing is definitely a functional space. Yeah, and I think this is the thing, isn't it, that we when we're building or renovating our home, you know, I know a lot of homeowners speak to me about the fact that they're wanting to create that beautiful indoor-outdoor connection. They're focused a lot on what the interiors might be doing, the types of rooms and how they want those rooms to be. But yeah. so much of that su- the success of a house working well and being functional, particularly for a family who might have small children or, you know, need some space around the home to entertain and play space and, you know, uh, create privacy from their neighbours, is reliant on the landscape design itself. And when you can create that integrated picture... I think that's a really, really fantastic outcome. And I see that that's so much of what a landscape architect can help with is understanding the vision that, you, that you're seeking to achieve in the design of the home, be it working with an architect or a building designer or directly with a builder, to then bring that into the story of the way that the landscape uh, design is done and the way that the garden works around the home and the process from literally from entering off the street through into the home and then through the home and then out into the, into the rear garden. Exactly, Amelia. And um, I think in a couple of previous podcasts, I've, I've heard you talk about that, that arriving home, how you arrive home, how your guest arrives, etc, etc. Um, it is. I mean, I think especially in SEQ and, and where we are here in Northern Rivers, the way we live is, you know, we get home, we open everything up, we walk outside, we sit on our deck. I think it's really important, you know, that outdoor space is almost our you know, North American living room, I think. So um, we're often focused around that and exactly, as you said before, how that works with the kitchen, how the food's served, how the story of your family goes, how you live, how you look after your kids, how you watch them swim in the swimming pool, all that important stuff. Yeah, and so much of that that functional input then helps free up your sense of comfort and confidence and relaxation exactly. in the home, doesn't it? Yeah, so. yeah exactly. So... Luke, this might be a bit of a big question, but what do you see as the real difference between landscape architects, landscape designers and landscapers? Because there's obviously lots of disciplines. It's like designing a home. You can have an architect, a building designer, a draftsperson. You know, what do you see are the, the main differences between those different disciplines when it comes to the design of your your gardens and your areas around your home? Yeah, it's uh, it's a question I get asked all the time. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's kind of like an orthopaedic surgeon and a GP, you know. Um, I think uh, as a landscape architect, we specialise in areas. As I mentioned before, we specialise in those areas being childcare, residential design, rooftop gardens. Other landscape architects I know don't. They specialise in, you know, commercial warehouses and stormwater retention and that, and that sort of thing. But the key role uh, change from a landscape architect to a landscape designer would be that, you know, you're buying our experience, you're buying our wealth of knowledge, um, you're buying the study that we did on, you know, principles of design, looking at scale, balance, um, the form, the textures, different colours. You know, you, you might have found some work by Louis Barragan that explores, you know, these beautiful pastel South American colours. You know, we get into that that idea of design and 
those those commonalities in design are not just in landscape architecture, they're across all design. Um, and I, I just feel that landscape design is probably more focused towards horticulture, plant, construction, that sort of thing. So great, look, everyone's got a, a key or a role in, in the process. Some are more appropriate to a project than others. I think the difference is, yeah, just those core design principles and... Um, and we know a little bit of, about plants as well. They may know a little bit about design. It, it kind of yeah, it's hard, isn't it? And I know it's a tricky question because I get asked a lot: what's the difference between an architect and a building designer and a draftsperson? And yeah. you know, your your take on that will always depend on sort of where in that mix you sit and the study that you've done and then the work experience that you've had. And so, but I think it's um it's great to sort of understand that there is a difference and at the end of the day that there are people that are great at what they do and people that aren't so great at what they do so whilst you may um, understand the difference between the different profession and still making sure that you're getting the right person for you and your needs and your project that you can exactly. communicate with yeah and is going to deliver what you're seeking is um is probably the the highest check i think for people isn't it so correct yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I love the reference to Louis Barrigan. I'll make sure that I put a, a a link to that in the show notes for people because, oh, look, to be honest, and you know Jeffrey Barwar and there's just the the the, I think in Australia, we've I know my generation we were probably raised on Don Burke and you know that's what yeah. ba- <laughs> that's what backyard design sort of looks like. <sighs> and when you do, you get into the design industry and you see just what is possible and it doesn't always have to cost a boatload of money, but that there is this whole nother level of transcendence that um, it sounds a bit woo-woo, but that your landscape design can take itself too when you get that right design input into the process and into the outcome and then of course get it fit for purpose and site in terms of functionality, plant types, drainage, you know, and, and exactly. servicing. So yeah. So yeah, I love that you mentioned, you know, that design education I know was really pivotal for me in my architecture degree, just opening up the world to kind of what is possible in the various options. And from a landscape point of view, you know, that study that you guys do in your degree can really be pivotal in changing the way that uh, you approach solving problems um, on any landscape design level. Correct. Yeah. Considered outcome. Yeah. So, Luke, this is the thing with building and renovating, though, that I often find is that either landscape design gets completely forgotten about, doesn't get factored into the budget at all, gets thought of immediately that will save cash and do it as a DIY, or it's the first thing to get dropped out of the budget when the time comes. I know from experience of working you know, with companies like Mervac is that we would always protect and preserve the landscape design budget to and and oftentimes during construction when the when the development was about to go on the market the landscape design um, budget would actually get increased because we had to bring in more established trees you know more significant planting upgrade some of the landscape components to really make the project feel co- comfortable and welcoming and and of the standard that they were seeking to achieve so you know, it is one of those really tricky areas, I think, when you're trying to manage a building and renovating budget to protect and preserve and value for its impact in, you know, your immediate lifestyle in the home. So, you know, in terms of thinking about when you should get a landscape architect involved, how that process works so that you can understand from an early point, when is that budget going to start to be set when can you start thinking about how you're going to factor that in? When do you recommend you get a landscape architect uh, on board in your project? I always say <laughs> ASAP, <Yeah>. obviously. <laughs> um, 
it's uh, again it kind of goes back to those core principles um we do we do look look at more than just plants edges what we can fit in where are we going to pop the sandpit or the veggie garden in um if we are involved at, at planning at um site analysis for example we might have an idea where we say let's let's shuffle the building to the south and and utilize all of that north aspect you know it's easy to do a plan look at the site as four four edges pop the building in the middle and away we go front yard backyard but we've been involved right at the start we've been involved with a lot of modular stuff over in strati island and stuff like that where we have said to the architects let's jump in early and shuffle this across and fit a beautiful pool down the side and and you know get the beauty of all of that north aspect and create um, that master planned solution isn't correct. it correct yeah so that's that's an ultimate for us we love being involved right up front it might just be a couple of comments might be a quick scribble a bit of sketch design it doesn't necessarily change the dollar value of our scope of work it just allows us to put that input in up front and early yeah that's i think that's great advice and i mean a lot of people will come to you at the point when the house is already designed, fixed, and they're just trying to design the edges around it. I agree with you that getting a landscape architect involved early is a great way to get a really collaborative relationship between building and land and make sure that you're getting that to work uh, in in an integrated way as possible. Uh, (laughs) Tongue twister. Um, But... You know, if somebody has, they've already finalised their design, they're wanting to get their garden designed, do you see any problems with that in terms of getting a landscape architect on board at that point? You know, and how can they make that work for themselves? No, I mean, it's how a lot of our projects roll out. We do work with what we've got. We do kind of scratch our our head and our beards sometimes <laughs> and think oh, it would have been great if we could have shuffled this or popped the swimming pool down here. And But, yeah, look. We're happy to be involved at any any stage and in any facet of the whole um, process. Our our role is sometimes a bit difficult in that our product grows and our product needs sun. Ah, that's <laughs> our, a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Our product needs light as well. Yeah. So we are um, constrained by those things on any site, on any project, on any terrain. Sometimes we do just say, look do you think that this this brief actually matches the site? We also say, do you think this brief matches the budget? Um, it's good to communicate those things and, and sometimes, as you said, we do get the role after the building's been set or if it's an older building or what have you. Um, yeah, it's about open communication and being honest. Sometimes when we educate clients, it's... Um, you know, seen as a bit of a negative in that we say you can't have a swimming pool because it just won't work or we say you can't have a veggie veggie patch because you've got no light. That's the nature of our product. Uh, Our product needs those those natural elements and, um, yeah, sometimes we have to deliver a little bit of negative news. Oh, I mean, I think that's a great realistic way to understand the constraints that most homeowners will be dealing with is that, you know, it's all... You may say that you want, you know, to be able to have a veggie patch in your back garden and, and you may want a fantastic pool and and those, you know, things that come with sort of creating lovely family homes. But if your site's your site and your orientation's your orientation and you've put the house in a certain place and that means the, the yard's always going to be in shade, then you are going to have certain hurdles to jump through, obviously, that 
plants just may not grow. And so that's going to yeah. change your choices, isn't it? And then yep. even the type of turf that you can use and how you need to prepare the ground and what opportunities you may even have for the type of landscape design that you're going to choose. Yeah, the other side of that statement is that um, we'll potentially save you some dollars in that you might want to put a veggie patch in there that we know just won't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good way of looking you're at it. You're better off going down to the fruit shop and buying veggies. Yeah, <laughs> avoid the mistake in the first place. Correct, hey? yeah. <laughs> So, Luke, in terms of tips that you have for people finding a landscape architect, I get a lot of homeowners saying to me, okay, I really want to create a great landscape design solution. You know, I want to bring a landscape architect on board. You know, where do I look for them? How do I check their credentials? How do I know that they're going to be able to deliver what I want? And how am I going to get them on the same page as what I'm envisaging in terms of, you know, often it's I want I want a great garden that's going to always look awesome, be super low maintenance and, and, uh, and you know, be a great family outdoor area. How do you recommend people go about finding a landscape architect? Yeah, um, this is one that I hadn't thought of in a long time, actually. And I spoke to the boys, asked Joey and Tony in the office yesterday, it's interesting because it's it's what we sell and and what we do. Um, but I hadn't actually thought about how you wonderful clients out there might find us. <laughs> uh, uh, Luke's getting a marketing lesson yeah. at the same time as answering a question. Correct. <laughs> um, there's a number of avenues. Uh, luckily. Uh, our main avenue is through word of mouth, which is fantastic. It's a nice little pat on the back. Um, but if it is, where am I going to search cold turkey? Um, there's a few spots that you can start. Um, obviously, online is is a great start. And the AILA website, A-I-L-A, which is the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects, um, has a list. And it's, it's a good one because it's by state and by area. So you can narrow that down as a constraint. That's great. And I'll pop a link to that in the show notes. So yeah, it's a good that. one. Yep. Um, you is, will... that, is it compulsory as a landscape architect to be on that list or is that a membership body that just represents the industry and you elect to be part of it? So if you have done study as a landscape architect, you are involved in AILA. Uh, with, that's within Australian um, law. And we are all listed up on there if we're AILA registered, yep. um, which I am and my office is. Yeah, so that's a good spot if you want a registered landscape architect. Um, there are other... Um, landscape architects who have gone on to do their study and not become registered. And there is a link uh, or, or a site that you can go to, which is ADLM, which is um, designers. Okay. Um, so, yeah, uh, we might pop both of those up. That'll just give you a contact and name. And, um, you know, we've all got a couple of pictures up there of our favourite projects. I think the other thing, too, is just reaching out to the broader consultant group and, and saying to your architect, hey, you know, my job's a beachfront house. Have you worked with anyone? Um, you know, my job's a rooftop garden of a warehouse apartment. Have you ever done this before with anyone? Um, I really think word of mouth is fantastic um, and that's a lot of our marketing and that's how we've gotten to where we are. Um, the other thing too is builders. Builders are often the intelligent. Um, <laughs> they have all the intel. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the network on site. Um, you'd probably be approaching us quite late in the piece if you're asking asking the builder. But we do get a lot of referrals through our builders. Um, so I'm just kind of working back from there and think that that's probably a good option as well. And I think too, isn't it? It's really, you know, you've houses another good place to look because um Correct. which is H O U double Z. So and and that's that's globally available. And I think then too you can search by location and you know, you, you guys have got a profile yep. on there. And yep. I mean 
It's the same, isn't it, as as uh, when you're looking for a, a house designer that you look at the work that the professional is doing and is it in alignment with what you're seeking for your project and do they look like they're getting good reviews? Do they, you know, and then picking up the phone and actually seeing if you can actually have a conversation with them. Definitely, and- yep, yep. And I think um, we'll probably talk about that later, but communication is definitely the key and I think the preferred one is by phone or in person. Um you know, things can get lost in emails or a, or a link on a um, a website. I mean, I know that our, <laughs> I'm probably guilty. My link on my website <laughs> to info at larkcollective dot com is probably not always answered. <laughs> <laughs> no, so yeah, if you want to grab Luke, I'll have his phone number in the in the show notes. So <laughs> no that's the best way to find him. So. Well, there's some great tips there. And I think, too, the fact that you understand that landscape architects are registered like architects are and are unregistered. So can you actually call yourself a landscape architect if you're unregistered or do you need to call yourself a landscape designer at that point? Does the industry work similarly to...? It does, yeah. Yep. Um, you can yeah, you can even go through study, as I said before, and not become registered with the governing body and... Um, yeah, call yourself a landscape designer. Um, if you are registered, you are under the ALA um, body and, you know, we all follow the the ethics and the, um, you and know... And the, the continuing professional development, the same things that we have to do exactly. as architects, yeah. Yep. So yep. that's actually great information to have, I think, in terms of that differentiation, again, is just understanding that at that level of the profession as a, as a registered landscape architect. It's not that just you've had to achieve certain study, you have had to get registered with the body, and then you're having to perform to a series of codes of conduct, um, continuing professional development, and those types of things to make sure that you are performing to industry standards and can maintain your registration. Yeah, yeah, and that's the value of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think that will be a surprise to a lot of homeowners um, you know, in terms of understanding, I know that it's a surprise to many when I explain the difference that an architect has to achieve to legally call themselves an architect. So that's definitely worth understanding for landscape architects as well. Yep. So Luke, in terms of thinking about how to go about seeking a fee proposal from a landscape architect, can you just talk through, you know, you get your fee proposal, what what do you recommend people look for in terms of what should be included, how, how it should be outlined and what they should expect to see so that they can compare um, fee proposal with fee proposal to really be able to uh, make the best decision for their project? Sure, Amelia. Um, I think the, the I mean, the bottom line is that our industry does lump some uh, fee proposals, which is annoying from my point of view. <laughs> we happily on hourly rates for the rest of time. Um, so by lump sum, you mean it's basically one bundle of money for one scope of work. So it's not because I know that when we do, when we've spoken in the past, I've spoken to the UA community about the fact that architects may do a percentage fee of construction cost or may do a lump sum and one gives more flexibility than the other, obviously. Yep. And then there's also hourly rates. So if you're doing lump sum, it's just a fixed bucket of money for a scope of work that's Correct. described. Yeah, yep. and and everyone out there, don't be afraid to um, to say, look, this is how I understand it. I, I would like to seek a lump sum fee. That is um, standard industry practice for us. Uh, we do do those things that you just spoke about in the background to cross-check what our fee is and what our percentage of the budget will be. But we do arrive in a stage-by-stage uh, lump sum fee. So... Yeah, th- those phases, you know, be it um, site analysis, concept, detail design, tender, construction admin, 
all will be made up of an hourly rate. I mean, that's how we run our it's practice. It's basically a service industry, isn't it? So it's a time for money Correct. equation. Yep. Correct. Sometimes we win. Um, <laughs> some, a lot of the time we go over. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing is, and I mean, I think that's worth people understanding is that when they do get a lump sum, in any service industry, I mean, design and uh, and uh, construction and those types of things aren't alone in this. It's an estimation of the amount of hours that you believe that work will take to deliver. And then as a consultant, you do take a certain amount of risk on board that we you do. can manage the process in the hours that you've allowed. And design is a bit of an amorphous thing where it's hard to pin down exactly how long it might take to solve a problem sometimes. So yeah. that you can often find that um, you end up doing more work to deliver the project than you initially anticipated. So yeah. it is that tricky line, isn't it, as a, as a professional? So It is, and, and we understand that's how it works, and, and we work as hard and fast and as precisely as we can to get it right within that dollar amount. Um, we're pretty lucky in the fact that we know all of our clients really well. And if it is something that's a big disparity, we can say, hey, look, John, you know, you know that we're working hard and we've produced what we've been asked. This is above and beyond. We've had our third RFI with council. Request for information. Yep. 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 Sorry. Oh, um, good. Uh, let's kind of renegotiate or... Yeah, we couldn't have anticipated this when yeah. we put that fee together at the yep. beginning. Yeah, so, and I think that fairness is definitely um, an important part of the working relationship too, isn't it? So Yeah, yeah, and communication. I, I pick up the phone and say that as early as I can um, so that there aren't any hidden surprises. I mean, it's a lump sum agreement, so I can't just chuck a variation in there without a discussion, but... Um, as you said before, sometimes projects do change and, um, yeah. Yeah, so in terms of that, then you get obviously the bundle of total money and then it will be broken down into stages. So yes. in, in in terms of, I suppose it's, you know, do you then get clients coming back to you and saying, can you just explain to me what happens in each of those stages and, and having that conversation with them so they understand the process? Yeah, all the time. Um, we we start our proposal with a bit of a reverse brief. This is what we discussed on the date of this. These are the drawings that you gave us and this is how we arrived at, at X. Um, and then we go into all the stages and we actually line item out. You will receive a colour A3 plan. You will receive a black and white plan with specification notes. You know, they change under each phase. So, yeah, we try and be as explicit as I can um, at that level. This is a great time to start the communication well and um, everyone knows what they're getting. And as you said earlier, um, if you are comparing two consultants, two landscape architectural consultants, then you um, you should ask for that so that you can really compare apples for apples. Yeah, and I think that's a great tip is that understanding that what you should expect to see is your you know, your vision, what you explained, what you said to the landscape architect you're seeking to achieve for your project, you know, thoughts that you had about what you wanted to do, that should be reiterated back to you in the fee proposal because basically then that sets the benchmark and the framework, doesn't it, of what the price is actually based on. So, you know, if that doesn't outline the full amount of work or scope of works for what you were planning for the project, then that's a really immediate red flag, isn't it, to say, look, this fee proposal might not be reflective of yeah. what I was actually wanting to do. And then I love the fact that you're talking about the different phases then will have deliverables. So what drawings can you expect? Yeah. What, you know, and things like, you know, how many meetings and things like that you might have at each point so that you can actually from a fee proposal, map out what does this process of working with this person look like and how much help am I going to be getting and, yep. you know, what what can I expect from how, how we'll work together? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, just a side note too, while you were talking, I was thinking sometimes um, we are novated to the builder. What does that mean? So we're wrapped up in the builder's price. So um, some of our constructions or some of our clients will be through a company that does the whole turnkey option. Um, so this is your lot. Um, we'll be building the house. We'll be executing the landscape. You'll get the thing as a turnkey at the end. Um, when we are novated to the builder, often um, you know our audience here today won't see our detail. It'll go straight to the builder. I would say that's a mild flag as well. I'd still, it's in your right to ask and say to the builder, look, can I see the landscape architect's fee? Um, because often the builder will um, say, yep, the landscape architect's going to be three grand. I'll put a little skim on it. You know, that'll that'll make up a bit of a buffer here and here. And, you know, you want to know what's in your shopping cart, um, I think, and, and that's a good and easy thing to say is to... Um, pipe up to your builder and say, hey, can we see the consultant's fee as well? Yeah, that's a great piece of advice, actually, because I think, you know, I know some builders will market the fact that they get a landscape architect involved to help you with your landscape design at that point. And that, of course, doesn't come for free. So there's going to be that, you know, it's the same when they're working with a designer, there'll be, that will be bundled up somewhere in the cost of delivery. Now, the builder is within their rights to charge a margin on that for the administration of managing that, managing the risk around it, all of those types of things. But a good builder will be transparent about it. So you being able to understand what are those fees. And it may not mean that you can then just go about sourcing somebody cheaper to try and save money because there may be existing relationships that are based on collaboration and risk and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's very, I think it's great advice to say to people, look, just understand what is in your, like what is in your shopping cart is a great analogy. What are you, what is, where is all of your money going um, so that you can be more informed about it overall? Yeah. And sorry, I wasn't demonising builders. Most of my best mates are builders. (laughs) No, I didn't take that at all. So, and I'm sure our listeners didn't either. So, but it is that thing, isn't it? That there's just, I think when you're doing this for the first time and you're building or renovating, it's a big chunk of money. It's generally zeros on a piece of paper. It is. And it's often coming on a bank statement because it's in a mortgage. And so you get, you can get bamboozled with just where is all of that going? And you can create your spreadsheets and you can create your budgets. But if you actually don't understand what the money is paying for at different points of the process and be involved in conversations about where is it going, you know, then then it's re- it can be really hard to go, okay, well, I've got $400,000 and I can account for 200000 of it, but I don't know where the other $200,000 is going, you know. So, yeah. you know, like just feeling, I think, I think then as a homeowner that helps you feel so much more confident and in control of the project in terms of how your money is getting spent and just then also knowing when do you need to get involved from a design input point of view so that you don't miss the opportunity to have a say in what your landscape design might be doing, yeah. you know, and how the yep. landscape architect's working. So I think that's that was a great thing to flag in terms of people being aware of that um, if that process does work for them. So, Luke, Perhaps you can share what you've seen go wrong when a homeowner has chosen a landscape architect that's not a good fit, because stuff does go wrong. If you haven't done your due diligence, done your homework, found the right landscape architect for you and your project, um, stuff can go wrong. So what are some of the things that you've seen in your profession? Yeah, look, it does happen. And I will admit it's happened to us as an office as well. Um, We've had a client that just wasn't happy with where we headed. And it was quite obvious that we weren't um, the right fit. We, uh, we communicated it, paid for the amount of work that we'd done or the client paid for the amount of work we'd done and 
and we decided to go um, separate ways. In fact, I recommended a good friend of mine that I knew would be a better fit than us. Well, that's really that's actually great information because that's the thing, isn't it? You just just because you need a landscape architect doesn't necessarily mean that any landscape architect will do. It actually has to be that you know you have to have that working partnership to get the best out of the process, don't you? So you do, yeah. And I think that's why recommendations or, or kind of seeking some reference, as we said before, is pretty essential um, in you know in getting the right consultant. What happens is if it's not the correct fit, everyone gets frustrated. Mm. Um, and I didn't start this this type of work to be continually frustrated. And I really like what I do. I love our outcomes. Um, I like our process. And sometimes you have to just pony up and say, look, this is what we do. This is how we do it. And I don't think your family or, or, or what you're thinking is, is the same as our thinking. So, um, yeah, it's it takes a bit of guts and, um, you know, a bit of communication, as we keep saying. But you're well within your rights to say, look, I don't think what we're doing or the design idea is what we had in mind. Um, can we go back to square one or, or, or can we call it quits? Communication being transparent, you know, being realistic. They're all things, uh, majority uh, things go pear-shaped around dollars. So asking your consultant, what does this cost? Um, you know, what is a pool worth? Will it will it be the same on our site? Um, those, those queries um, often prevent um, things from not being the right fit and the design outcomes not being the right fit. Um, yeah, well, I think that, you know, I think that... Uh, so often, oh, I think because it's a design thing, a lot of homeowners get quite intimidated about giving feedback that their designer will take that personally to heart, like a personal attack, yep. and are fearful of giving feedback that looks like criticism to them. So, But it is that thing, like if you're working with a designer who actually has your best interests at heart, which is kind of a good criteria for choosing a designer, yep. then... That, that feedback should be taken on board and then information provided as to why perhaps uh, your brief wasn't effectively communicated, why they've taken the design in that direction. Perhaps your budget's not sufficient for what you're actually asking. Perhaps um, perhaps you they thought that you'd ask for one thing and that's how it had been heard with them, but what you actually meant to communicate was something different. Yeah. So I think that it's important, isn't it, just to keep that conversation going yeah. and feel like you can have that honest and open feedback loop where you can be quite um, upfront about whether you do or don't like something. Yeah, exactly. And um, and often, you know, we'll go through seven, eight, nine concepts before we arrive at what we present to you. You know, there'll be reams and reams of yellow trace over yeah. the top of <laughs> yeah, base yeah. plans. Um, so it might be something that we discarded early that you communicate and say, hey, what about this? And we go, oh, bugger, we, we discarded <laughs> that because of this. But it might take a bit of an explanation and say, Oh, can you show us that bit of yellow trace? And um, and you can say, well, I actually prefer that. We might present it as a constraint, or you might be full aware of that. But yeah, it, it happens. I mean, our preferences um, sometimes aren't the exact preferences of the client. Sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes it's a frustrating thing. Yeah, well, it's isn't it? It's worth understanding, isn't it? When as a designer, when you're sitting at you know your computer or your drawing board creating these things, you're making a bunch of decisions based on your assessment of what the clients ask for, what the site calls for, what the brief calls for. You know, all of these different things are informing how you actually put lines on a page. Yeah, and you're making a bunch of choices on behalf of the client to then deliver the documents that you actually present to them. And along the way, you know, that's I, I have clients who say. 
say to me, oh, I wish I could just sit beside you whilst you design. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and unfortunately, the process... You know, it's it's weird because so much of that stuff's actually occurring inside your head. You can't actually physically sit alongside somebody and sketch that out in a yeah. way that's that's going to make sense to them. But the design that you come up with, yeah, it may be that three steps backwards you made a choice down one pathway and, and they're thinking, well, actually, I would have preferred this. And so you can draw on that previous development to, to then, re, I think, readjust where you're going. So Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, answering the question... While the project's happening, I think the other facet of that question is probably before you procure um, the consultant or before you you go down that avenue is, again, check those references, look at some of the outcomes. I mean, it's hard as as running a young firm. We don't have as, ma- as many built projects as, you know, Westgate in Europe that you know, <laughs> you know, has 20, 30 years of experience. Um, but, look, they probably wouldn't be the best fit um, for a subtropical beach house either. So, yeah, it's choosing the right apple. Yeah, and I think, too, that conversation that you can have at the outset, too, can tell you so many things. Like if you can actually say to perhaps you're not seeing all of the glossy photographs that you might be seeing on another designer's profile but you kind of like the feel and language and information that's on the website and the way they're sort of speaking and you pick up the phone to them and you like the way that the landscape architect's having a conversation with you and yeah. you know I think you can then you can still do your checks and balances can't you and and also set up the fee that perhaps you can walk away and still own the design concept at any point so that if you do find that you've made the wrong choice they didn't have as much experience as you thought, you know, perhaps you didn't click as much as you thought you did, that you haven't sort of wasted time and energy, but you've um, you've still can keep moving forward in your project. Yeah, yeah. So, Luke, in terms of how people actually prepare for their first meeting, so they've picked, they found, they found a profile of somebody they like, they've picked up the phone, got a good feel from the conversation, they've said, can you please come to my place, can we have a chat about this, or perhaps can, can I bring in my drawings, you know, my sketches and show you the ideas that I've got? What what should they sort of try and pull together for that first meeting in terms of, you know, their ideas? I know a lot of people get confused about how much information they should sort of bring and how much they should rely on the landscape architect to bring. What are your recommendations for how that first meeting can be prepared for and how it should go and then sort of what should happen after? Yeah, sure. I think every initial meeting I've ever sat down and and been a part of has been different there's a few things that do make uh, the fee more precise and and the brief easier to produce it's I often ask um, the family you know tell me a bit of a story about getting home from school and how the house or the space will work and you know what happens in the morning when you wake up or what happens on a Saturday afternoon when you're jumping in the pool um, That's that, a great way to think about it, isn't it? Because you can start to then think, okay, how does this really need to function for yeah, us? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's about a story and it's about, you know, the vibe and, <laughs> and kind of selling the, the joy that will be the end outcome. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, and it's and let's not neglect that because, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, I'm spending $10,000. This is a negative experience. It should be um, a positive experience. There are some pretty simple things we often ask just in an email as a reverse brief. What are your top three objectives? What are your top three concerns? That's really simple. Um, What is your budget? And then again, what is your budget? (laughs) Um, What if they've got no idea? How does that work? 
I attended a good course or a good forum um, a couple of months ago, Craft Architecture, and Mel from Make Architecture um, down in Victoria, uh, she um, she elaborated on this really well. And their office often does an ultimate scheme um, as per the brief, no budget in mind, and then they do a budget design and they present that to the client and show these the difference between the two and you know this is what we can achieve and um you know as consultants we have wonderful ideas and you know it's sometimes it's like an Alice in Wonderland yeah um chain of events and I think too people can't really make decisions about what they do want until they know how much it's going to cost them yeah. really yeah. isn't it so I can see why that ultimate idea plus the budget idea it then helps you weigh up priorities okay well if, if I know I'm going to get that, then yes, I can probably find the extra money. Exactly. Or no, yep. it's just not physically possible for me to get the extra money at this point. Can I get the budget, but can I build in the capacity for it to become that down the track? Yeah, so, stage two or three. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a great idea and um, it's a great way of her communicating um, that it's a little more work, of course, but... Yeah, it's But that's great advice. If somebody's got absolutely no idea but they want to build in that flexibility to be able to chat to their consultant at the very first meeting and say, okay, I don't really know what I want to spend because I don't know what I'm going to get for it. Can you design me, you know, the budget could be, it could have a $300,000 range based on, and I, like I know some homeowners have come to me with that. I know there'll be listeners at home going, oh my gosh, there's no way in the world I could find $300,000 extra. But it's mm. that, it is that thing, isn't it, both on a landscape point of view and a built point of view, if you do have some scope and flexibility based on what you can achieve, then that's a great conversation to have early in the piece. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. great tip. Yeah. So, okay, so they, they've, um, they've come to you, they've got their budget, they've got the story. What else should they bring together? Um, we often get a, a Pinterest folder, which has been um, a really helpful bit of technology. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit chaotic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's North American red redwood in there that probably doesn't grow in Queensland <laughs> or New South Wales. Yeah, make um, sure you're pinning Australian sites hey, yeah, for landscape because it yeah. is also and, – and for those of you listening overseas that you're pinning local stuff because, uh, yeah, there's only so much that will grow that's not typical to an area. So, yeah. Yeah, correct. You know, we're not, not planting steel. We're, we're planting plants. And, um, <laughs> you know, they grow in a certain environment. Um, so part of our process is setting up um, a few mood boards or a few pages of precedent images, and that's part of our process. We'll, we'll run you through those and a bit of a tick and cross um, with plants and with materials as well. So that is, that, that is how we get across that, um, that unknown. Yeah, I, I just think the spoken stuff, a couple of images, a base plan, if you've got it, is amazing. So in terms of a survey with some topography and those Sorry, types of things yep. on it, yeah, to yep. show to show um, where services might be and those constraints that could be coming into play in terms of how your landscape can actually be designed. Yeah, exactly. Don't worry if you don't have that. We can do a site analysis and, you know, do a, a measure up. But, yeah, I think that's it. Um, the first discussion, reverse brief, images, um, and then spatially, you know, some data on the site. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, 
that that idea of creating the story of how you want to use this space and how you want it to work with how you use the home. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's a yeah. lovely way to think about it. Okay, what happens when, say, you do go and pick up the kids from school and they come home? What do they do? Do they immediately run outside? Do they sit and have afternoon tea and then they disappear? You know, what level of supervision do you want over them? Do you want yep. to be able to get dinner done whilst you whilst they're in the pool? Because it's only tiny little kids. There is a point where you don't actually have to be at the pool's edge yep. to help kids out, but you want to be close enough to them. So, you know, that whole, I think particularly for family homes, that level of convenience that can come from how functionally your home works with your garden um, can make such a a critical difference to the relaxation of your home overall. So I love that idea of coming with a story that's fantastic. So Luke, in terms of having that first meeting, you've you've spoken about pulling together the brief, uh, which is obviously the communication piece that you're using to talk about what you want to do for the project. Um, and that idea of that story, idea of budget, some images and ways of sort of explaining what you are seeking. Landscape Architect says, yep, 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 all great. They then go away. What should you expect then to happen next? Um, if I was the client, I would expect um, a couple of days' time I'd get a fee proposal and that proposal would be quite quite um, detailed in that it would talk about the meet and greet as we said before, it would uh, provide a reverse brief um, and then it would give all of the um, the expected outcomes in each phase. I would ask the landscape architect if it hasn't been included, um, does it include site analysis, um, how do we exchange data? In terms of how you actually send information to each other, is that how you mean? Yeah. Correct. And will that data be mine? Um, oh, okay. Yes. Um, yep. You know, sometimes... So will I get CAD files? Will yeah. I just get PDFs? You know, that type of thing. So yeah. Exactly, Amelia. And and yeah, some consultants do protect their, their raw data, raw data being their, you know, CAD files, DWGs, Photoshop files. Yeah, that surprises a lot of people that that happens. And they say, why can't I have the CAD files? Because I want to then, I, I get people contacting me and saying, you did this design, can I now take the CAD file and give it to my, you know, drafts person and, you know, for the for most of my, my, my drawings are done by hand so the CAD file doesn't actually exist. But if it's the case that that's an uncontrolled document that actually contains a lot of IP in the back end, doesn't it? Because, yep. Yep. you know, often what are people, a lot of people outside the industry potentially don't understand is that we're to make those CAD tools customised for our own work, we actually build a lot of customization into them. And so be it library parts and those types of things. So when you do give that raw file to somebody, you're kind of sending all of that with it, aren't you? So You are, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, and we can we can alter those files to draw some of that um, IP and that customised um, block and detail information out of our drawings. But yeah, it, I think. But you it's, want to know up front whether you're going to have to spend time doing that, don't you? So yep. the, the client needs to ask for that as exactly. part of their fees. Yep. Yep. That's great advice. Um, I'd also ask what time, or it should be detailed in there in in, in a rough time frame. Um, some of the biggest frustrations by clients is that, oh my god, he's too busy. Um, you know, the guys haven't got this back to us. Um, in each phase, we often write how many weeks approximately each um, design phase will take. Awesome um, tip, yep. Yeah, so you guys can know. I mean, you're obviously planning out sometimes a very particular and detailed project plan, and time does equal cash. Yes. So you do want to know that, you know, 
concept design will be done in two weeks and DD will be two weeks straight after that or something like that. Um, so, yeah, and you're well within your rights to get that information yeah. from the designer, aren't you? So, And yeah. then also you can schedule in your life when are you going to be getting drawings that you then have to set some time aside to sit and review yeah. so that you're not holding things up in the overall process as well. So. Yeah, if it's a constrained site and you need to dig your pool or do some structural landscaping out the back, you might have to seek um, you know, entrance via a neighbour's yard. You want to um, sequence the works. Um, you've got to think about all that sort of stuff. And our design process is obviously coming all before um, that. So, yeah, you need to, to get your head around that data. That's great. Yeah, uh, that's a fantastic tip in terms of under- understanding that time frame. And I know, you know, it's the same for any design process that you're working through if it's got an end result of you needing to physically move out or as you say get access from a neighbor's yard and have your life kind of derailed for a little bit whilst construction you want to know how much and people often are surprised how much time it kind of takes them to get from let's have this conversation to let's have the end result that i actually can hand over to a builder so yeah but again i mean this is what you're paying um consultants like us for in that we do have this experience and we do have this foresight to to program out this sort of stuff so in regards, you know, that that conversation, I think probably some people would be surprised in terms of, as we said, about how much time things do take. What else do you see surprise people when it, they start to think about the design of their landscape and the cost of, of um, working to, to design outcomes on their project, be it, you know, things like the actual labour or the deliverables or how the landscape gets done, how people physically get access to a site, the things that can really impact budget and time what do you see surprise people in your experience? Um, in a very detailed uh, response, um, traffic control. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as people see um, the sum of traffic control, it's just exorbitant. Um, oh, that, I mean, and that's the thing, isn't it? You'd find that sometimes these little suburban streets, yep. it's a requirement of council that yep. if you're having certain trucks being bringing certain gear at certain times, that means that you are going to have to have traffic control in place to make sure that everybody can still get to work in a safe way. All of your neighbours don't get annoyed. So, yeah, that's very – that, and it is. It's a big chunk of change, isn't it, in sitting in a budget? So, it is, Amelia, yeah. yeah, unfortunately. But, you know, it, as you said, if you are doing structural landscape work or, or bigger um, bigger work such as pools or, you know, shelters or, you know, putting in some beautiful colour bond roofing over your uh, gazebo, um, you do need a crane truck and you do, do need access. Um, you do need steel to come in for the, uh, the slab in your pool. So... It all needs to be considered. I think some of the bigger cost elements, when when working in Brisbane, it is a fairly undulating um, town, city. Often we do need a structural wall, some sort of retaining. Clients are always, always shocked um, about a structural wall, the cost of retaining, the cost of drainage. Drainage in particular, you know, it's something that you can't see. It's really annoying, um, but it's absolutely <laughs> essential. You'll um, kind of be glad that you did it when your house isn't flooding you will. in that next big downpour. You yeah. will, yeah, and I think that's really important when you are getting those those storms that we do get. And um, I, yeah, and I think too, even on sites that look you know, to the naked eye look flat, we can actually be quite surprised when we do start to cast levels across them that there is enough slope to require retaining if you do want flat areas of turf for play space or, you Mm. know, a pool can't be on a slope. So, you know, you need to actually put a pool in. You'd be surprised how much level change there may be in what looks like a flat site as well. So Exactly. I think that's a... 
that's always a shock, um, retaining. The other thing too that a client, uh, that our clients do kind of have to sit down when they, they see the bill is um, a response because of a, a soil report. Um, so often you may not know, but a, a certain reactive soil or a certain structure of soil will require a different footing. Um, and that might be your pool has to be on a certain pier or a certain pile or a certain strip footing um, to hold it in, in place on your site. So, yeah, you need yeah. to think about all these things and yes. that's what we're doing in the background. And yeah. Which makes sense why you get a landscape architect in Correct. early, doesn't it? Because then you can actually get some guidance in. They can look at your site and go, okay, well, this is what I can perceive from what I can visually see are potentially going to be the other disciplines we need to get involved, the information we need to collect so that you're getting that process of starting to nail down, all right, these are going to be the general challenges I have and then this is what that impact that's going to have on my budget and then this is how I can move forward overall so yeah yeah on the flip of that i think i've spoken a a few surprises and and a few negatives i think another positive surprise is people often say luke wow that tree was only that much i think when we're um, talking to residential clients we often try and persuade or suggest to them that they do spend a, uh, um, a bit of their budget on a really nice tree and as big a bag size i.e height or pot size they can afford in that tree now vertical elements are the things that you see straight away you know when the turf's laid and you you kind of open the back door and look at your wonderful landscape that's just gone in you have to consider that all the little plants will grow up and turn into that tiered structure that the landscape architect has produced but i think one of the wonderful things is they go oh that tree in the corner you know that's a beautiful tulip wood or that's a you know, beautiful banks here. I'm glad I spent a little bit of money and that's now 2.4 metres in height going straight in and it's those vertical elements that make the difference and a positive surprise. Yeah, that's actually a great point because I think um, when you're trying to think about bang for buck with your landscape, we probably think, okay, everything just has to be small. But if you actually think about, okay, what statement pieces do I want? What what do yeah. I want to provide shade to me in five years rather than 20 years? You know, what where can I spend my budget to get that kind of instantaneous result that then helps me feel in love with this garden whilst everything catches up and everything else yeah. grows? Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we're so, particularly in Australia, we're very fortunate to have a great climate where things can and do grow very well when you get the soil doing what it needs to. Um, but, yeah, that's great advice in terms of I know that in renovations that we've done, we've invested money in, you know, one or two significant trees um, that just give that established look. And at Mervac, that was always where the money got spent at the tail end yep. was we'd come in and, and say, okay, we need to put some more trees through here because people want shade. They want somewhere that feels comfortable that actually draws them out into the garden yep. to then feel, um, feel welcome and that the garden is another room for them. So I think that's a great tip. So lastly, Luke, and this is a question that um, I'm asking all of our professionals on this season, is what key tips do you have for working well with a landscape architect? You've touched on some things in the process of um, our time together, but in terms of actually creating a really great working relationship with them, what would be your main points of advice? Firstly, be nice to your landscape architect. Oh, the UA community are a lovely, nice bunch, so they'll be nice Good. to be professionals. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe um, a face-to-face so you can bring banana bread or some sort of, <laughs> some sort of cake. <laughs> oh. 
Um, no, I think we've touched or we've we've reiterated a number of times on communication and which type of communication, be it face-to-face, uh, telephone or email and how each of those work best. I think just know your brief as well. That's why we, just going back to a couple of points, that's why we asked those top three and, and for that story. I think if both parties know the brief, know it really well, know that it's watertight and know that you're happy with it. And if you're having, you know, doubts that you want to change it, communicate that and just keep going back to that brief. You know, it's your executive summary of, of your outcome and, um, yeah, hold it up and, and know it and keep yeah. referring to it. So it's it's such a critical communication tool, isn't it? And so I know a lot of people get confused about how to physically create it because um, particularly a lot of women, um, they want to write big stories about how they see their home working for themselves and their family. And then they'll hit designers who go, oh, I just can't read through all of that. That's yeah. just too long and copious. Yeah. But at the end of the day, my advice always is that – you should take what you need to take in order to explain what you're actually seeking to do for your home. And it's important that you get people on board who respect and value the way that you're communicating that because it helps them then get inside your head. There's no point kind of assuming that the gaps in communication are being filled by expertise if you haven't actually said, this is what I want and explained it as in the level of detail that you feel conveys it. Um, then, yeah, I think that, that that communication tool of your brief, as you say, is a really critical document that yeah. needs to be carried the whole way through the project. So, Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes the intervention or the, the idea that, that we have, you know, is, is not a glitzy, gigantic um, lap pool. You know, it might be something really small or soft or, you know, intricate or some sort of treasure or something like that. So, yeah, but I think as long as your landscape architect um, understands that all you really want is a shrine or a little treasure or something within your garden space, then, you know, the outcome will be exactly as you imagine. Yeah, and I think it's that – it is that opportunity, isn't it, that when you're creating landscapes – Thinking about the scale as much as the experience, it doesn't all have to be great big grand statements of, yeah. like you say, big pools, big areas of turf, big, big plants, you know, that the joy can actually come from just focused treatment on special areas that then create the opportunity for you to travel into the landscape, be yeah. welcome to a point, yeah. have a space to sit that is um, just really about your connection with something that was really special to you. So Exactly. Yeah, yeah I love that idea. And um, and we've talked about communication and about, um, about setting the expectations for how you want to communicate with your landscape architect. So, you know, I think that's also great advice is if you expect to be able to see them on a Saturday, that that needs to be queried at the point of meeting them because um, not all landscape architects will be willing to come meet you on a Saturday. So, you know, just how that works. Probably not this one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, you know, you know, do you want to be able to call them um, on a weekly basis and get an update yeah. and, and all of those types of things. So, and, you know, we also spoke about honesty and that honest feedback as well. So I think um, you gave some great tips about being able to be open and honest with your landscape architect along the way, you know, in terms of how you think about that. Is that something that you really value in your relationships with clients? We do, yeah. It, it you know, changes over the process of a project as well. Um, so it's just so important. You know, you need to tell us if you really like it and you need to tell us if you really don't like it. <laughs> it's, yeah. And the sooner the better, hey? 
Yeah, I mean, it's design's a really interesting and challenging thing because you are giving birth to a to an idea or a concept or you know a light bulb moment. Um, but sometimes it's you know not fit for that for that client, or sometimes it absolutely blows their mind. Um, so yeah, you need to give us a huge pat on the back when it does blow your mind, <laughs> and you need to say, hey, let's just hold our horses for a tick. Um, I need to talk to my husband or my wife or my brother or my sister about this because I just don't think it's it's hit the mark and um, I've got another idea or, you know, be open. Maybe maybe if you can't approach that, it's too much, pop it in an email as a couple of dot points, send the email, sit back, have a cup of tea and then pick up the phone and say, hey, look, did you read my email? Do you think that's fair? You know, softly, softly. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think um, that's a fantastic note to finish on. Luke, I, um, you've shared so much knowledge in this episode about right. how to work well with a landscape architect and some really great tips, I think, for thinking about landscape architecture and design for your home, be it for a renovation or a building project. As I said earlier, it is the it is the one thing that a lot of people um, will drop off when the budget gets too tight, but it is by far and away from my experience one of the most significant factors in making a home feel finished and, and for it to be that immediate place of joy and experience when you move in after all of the hard work yeah. and uh, and what's probably felt quite relentless and um, never yep. ending <laughs> in terms of renovating or building your home. So I want to thank you very much for your time uh, in this episode and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks, Luke. No worries. Now, as I said at the beginning of the episode, your landscape design is an important part of your project. It can actually be really significant, really crucial in making your project uh, feel and look great. Yet it can often be left behind, either due to budget constraints or just simply not being included in your thoughts. Oftentimes I see homeowners get so focused on the house itself that they kind of forget that the landscape design can be factored in as well. And, you know, this then often then means that it gets left behind, gets added as a DIY project. But it's such a key part of creating that overall look and feel for your home, as I said, and really finishing things off. So I hope you found this episode helpful in understanding how a landscape architect can help you achieve this. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Luke and Lark Collective, make sure that you head to the show notes and I'll have links to his website and his social pages so that you can get in touch. Now, as with home design, there are different industry professionals who can help you with your landscape design. So Luke has shared with us how a landscape architect can support you and the different credentials that a landscape architect will have. And later in the season, I'll also be chatting with a pair of landscape designers so that you can see what approach may suit you for your project and also know the questions to ask. Now, remember, Undercover Architect is always about helping you find the best fit for you in an informed way so that you can get a great outcome for your home. And that works for the landscape as much as it does for the home design itself. Now, in the next episode, I'll be joined by interior designer Melissa Wittig, and she'll be sharing some fantastic insight into how an interior designer can support you as you build or renovate your home. So join me then. Now, before I head off, remember our season four podcast partner is Colourbond Steel and their Matte Range. Now, when you're working to achieve an overall look or holistic design for your new home or renovation, it's important to tie together your landscape design with the selections that you make for your home as well. The Colourbond Steel Matte Range of five colours have actually been inspired by nature. They're simple, neutral tones that diffuse light for that soft, natural, textured appearance. And this helps them have a character about them and it just gives a gorgeous appearance overall. 
One thing that I love doing to accentuate the landscape design is to actually think about how the various planting choices are being made, you know, how they'll then sit against the exterior colours of the home. And so nothing makes a green landscape really pop, really punch out or sing like having a dark colour sitting behind it. So Colourbond Steel's matte colours of basalt and monument are a great choice if you're seeking this look for your project because it's more edgy, has that more contemporary feel and it can be incredibly stunning and, and just look gorgeous sitting next to that greenery of your landscape. Now, if you want something that's more tonal, more subtle, the three lighter colours may be more your style. So Surf Mist, Shell Grey and Dune, these are all lighter colours in the matte range and they'll help your home have that lighter feel and, and sit well with your landscape design in a more neutral and tonal way. So head to www.colorbond.com forward slash undercover architect and it's C-O-L-O-R. We're all getting the hang of this now. So C-O-L-O-R-B-O-N-D.com forward slash undercover architect where you can grab samples, look for more information and really understand how fantastic the Colorbond Steel map range is. Thank you for tuning in to the Get It Right podcast with Undercover Architect. Now, if you head to the Undercover Architect website, you'll see loads more helpful information on how to get it right when designing, building or renovating your home simply and with confidence. Not only can you see all the podcast episodes there, there's also a wealth of written blogs and of videos too covering all sorts of topics. And there's other ways as well that Undercover Architect can give you more support and guidance for your project. Now, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please subscribe so that you always get notified of new episodes as soon as they go live. And I'd love it too if you could please leave a review. (laughs) I know that iTunes doesn't make it easy to leave a review, but when you do, this is super helpful in spreading the word that this podcast exists to others who really need to hear it to get help with planning their future homes. This has been Amelia Lee from Undercover Architect. Thank you for listening and for letting me be your secret ally. Looking forward to next time. Bye.